0: morning. Today we are marking kind of uh, two ending points um, here at Covenant. Uh, The first ending point is that there is such a thing as what we call the liturgical church calendar, and this is not a covenant calendar. It's not even a Presbyterian calendar. It's a calendar that many different churches and church groups use that functions and, and fashions the year, every year, based on a liturgical calendar. Okay? And so today is the Sunday before Advent begins, is, which today is. Advent start next, starts next week, is the end of the liturgical calendar. So today is the end of the liturgical year. Next week is the beginning of the liturgical year with the beginning of Advent. And what that means is that today's Sunday, the, the last Sunday of the year, this Sunday, is always every year. Uh, called in the liturgical calendar Christ the King Sunday. It's an important day where every single one of us, no matter what's going on in our lives, no matter what is going on in our nation, no matter what is going on in our world, whether we feel like it's a good time or a bad time or a kind of in-between time, it's where we as followers of Jesus are called to stop on this final day of the year and say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King, over all creation. It is a, a reminder for all of us of just remember how the story ends. Just remember how the story ends. So today is Christ the King Sunday. It's the end of the liturgical year. The second thing that's ending today, and this is probably like a little less significant, but I still think it's fairly significant, is we're ending our current teaching series today called Thy Kingdom Come. And you see how we layered that a little bit? It's like we end the kingdom series on. Christ the King Sunday. <laughs> that's what they call leadership, kids. That's that's how that's how we that's how we make this happen. And so so we're 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 ending this series where we've been talking about what is the kingdom of God and what is it to say that every single one of us who is here is called primarily to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God. That's our primary identity in life, is that we are followers of Jesus. And that ought to supersede any other identity that you and I have. That we are followers of the King, of King Jesus, who reigns over all creation. Now the way that we've done that in this series is that we have mostly looked at one of the four Gospels, If you've been here and we've kind of talked about these different parables where Jesus talks about the kingdom. So, for instance, we started the series by talking about where God says, uh, where Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a great banquet feast that everybody's invited to come and attend. And we said, well, what does that mean and how do we think about that and how do we live as followers of Jesus as kingdom people? Or one week we talked about that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Michelle uh, preached about that here, and it was that it starts as a smallest seed, and then it blossoms into this great tree that is for serving others, and it provides shade and it provides comfort for other folks and creatures and, and everything else. It's, it's what does it mean to understand that about the kingdom of God? But last week and this week, we've taken a little bit of a different direction, and it's a different direction for a church like Covenant, for a Presbyterian church, because we've, last week and this week, spent some time in the book of Revelation right? I had someone who said to me after last week, like, I've never heard a sermon before in the book of Revelation. I'm like, well, good. We're doubling down. Next week, come again. Like, we're going to be doing it a second time, right? Because for those of us who maybe go to church at a place like Covenant, or we maybe go to actually go to Covenant, uh, there's stuff about this book that we're just kind of like, I don't quite know what to do with that, right? For example, We here in the Presbyterian church talk about how we do business, this phrase, decently and in order. That's what Presbyterians say. We do things decently. We like committees. We like to form committees that can strategize and structure things. And that's not bad. But the book of Revelation, if we're being honest, is neither decent, nor does it have any kind of order that a committee can get its head around and go, oh, well, this is kind of what we mean. And we all vote, and we all see it the same way, and then we move on. There's demons, there are angels, there are four horsemen of the apocalypse, there are lakes of sulfur, there are armies of light, there are armies of darkness, there are seven headed beasts. There's all this different kind of stuff that we who like committees and studying and analyze just sort of go, yeah, I kind of don't know what to do with that, right? It's like, you know, who wants to take a vote on what are we premillennial or, I mean, it's like, it's just, it just doesn't, people just, we don't know how to do it, right? So we just kind of pull back and we're like, we'll just pretend that book's not there, book of Hebrews, we love it. James, all the ones at the end, great. Revelation, yay. (laughs) And as pastors, we don't like it a whole lot, if we're being honest, because we like to teach Bible studies. Bible study leaders think this way. It's like we like to, at the end of our lesson, have an action step, right? We like to have something that we say, so this is what you do. Uh, Last week, we had suggested action steps if we're working for the healing of our nation that we're called to do. Next week, as we begin Advent, we're going to have suggested action steps, things that at the end we're like, so this is what we go do, right? It's easier in some senses to have those kinds of lessons. So when it says something like when Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, we love those kinds of lessons because it's like go and help the poor. Go feed the poor. Now, we, we probably won't do it but we'll think about it, right? We'll leave here and we'll go, well, that's what I'm supposed to do. May not in the midst of my busy life, but I know that's the action step I'm supposed to take. Or when Jesus says to forgive your enemies and those who have hurt you or persecute you. That's one of the hardest things in all of life to do, is to forgive people who have hurt us. But at least when we talk about that, it's like you can think about, well, who has hurt me? And have I done the hard work of forgiving him? Am I living in freedom from that pain, or am I still sitting there and allowing it to give direction and shape to my life? There's kind of action things you can get. This is about the apocalypse. There is nothing to do. There is no action step from the book of Revelation that we're going to go take today. So today's sermon is like completely different from anything we've ever done since I've been here before. Okay? because there's nothing to do. Rather, what we're going to think about today is we're just going to do as as we see in the Gospel of John, we're just going to try to abide in this. I just want you to, we're going to read two chapters, of the the last two chapters of the Bible from the book of Revelation that talk about the kingdom, and we're just going to try to let it wash over us, just to sit with it, just to let the images live in us. And just kind of, let it fire our imaginations of what God is and what his kingdom is about and what the saying is we pray for when we say, thy kingdom come. What are we praying for? Like, do you have any idea what you're praying for when we say those words in the Lord's Prayer? The book of Revelation probably gives the clearest teaching at the end of what it, heaven is like, something we will all experience, something that this Thanksgiving, many of us will have pain because of those who have gone before us who we miss, where they are now. This is, this is real, and and we can't just ignore it. So we're just going to kind of sit in that together, okay? Now before we read the the passages, there's a few things that I just think are important to we say about the book of Revelation. First off is, is it's written about 40 or 50 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus by a man named John. Now in the history of the church, kind of uh, lore has been that the John who wrote this book is the same John who was the Apostle John that was with Jesus, who uh, we, we credit with writing the Gospel of John, one of the four Gospels. But that's probably not true. Uh, John, who uh, is mentioned in the early verses of Revelation, never says he's that John. That's just an association we've made. But we know that this book was written about 40 or 50 years after the crucifixion and resurrection, when most of the original apostles had passed on at that point. So it's probably a different John. We know that he wrote during the reign of the Emperor Domitian. That we know the years when the Emperor Domitian was, was ruling the Roman Empire. And the Emperor Domitian, we know, was one of the first emperors who actively persecuted Christians and Christianity. This was a time of great difficulty and great struggle for Christians when this book was written. The Emperor Domitian imprisoned Christians, he had Christians murdered. And he had Christians exiled. Now to be exiled means that you are sent away from the place that you know is home, from all your family and all of friends, and you have to go live in a very difficult place, away from anyone you know. It's a, very diff- it's, a, it's a harsh punishment. And John, who has written this book, is a Christian who has experienced that kind of persecution. He is now living in exile on an island in the Mediterranean Sea called Patmos. It's where he writes this book. It's where he's living in exile now. If any of you have ever been to the Mediterranean Sea, you may be there. There's some wonderful islands in the Mediterranean Sea. You can have your picture of that, and you're like, well, that doesn't sound too bad. Be exiled there, right? It's like pretty nice, and it's, you know, if I had to go live, someone told me, it's like, you have to go live the rest of your lives on this remote island in the beautiful part of the Mediterranean Sea. You're like, well, that doesn't sound too bad, right? That is true. I have vacationed on an island, a Greek isle in the Mediterranean. It is beautiful. Patmos was not that kind of island okay? Patmos was an island that was almost all rock, had very little shade. It had almost nothing that you need to survive. It would have been eking out a very difficult, painful existence. John probably didn't have the materials to even build a house or hardly any trees on Patmos, so he lived out his days in a cave alone on this island. And while he is living in a cave on the island of Patmos in exile for being a Christian, he is given this vision a revelation, if you will, of the end days, of the days that are to come, of what eternity, of what the kingdom of God is really like. And so we're going to kind of journey with him. John is given a journey by an angel through the book of Revelation as to what this would look like. And today, I invite you as we read these two chapters, the final two chapters of the Bible, to just let this live in you. Abide in it. This is the kingdom of God. Starting in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. Let's go to the text. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his people's, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. So, what we see here in these verses is that heaven is not what we see in the, the movies, where it's like clouds and like little cherubs with harps going around, it's a city. It's a city, a new Jerusalem. It's a city that is the city of God, the kingdom of God, that descends upon this earth. And it's a place that is The And some of the most amazing words of Scripture found in this verse, that the dwelling place of God is now desired to be among mortals. That's the voice that comes from the throne and what it declares as the new Jerusalem comes down. And this is a completion of something we see from the beginning of Scripture. We see that in God's creation in the Garden of Eden, that God is already living in relationship in the Trinity, but that God also creates, creates you and me, creates life, not because God has to do it, not because there's rules, but God creates because God desires to be with us. We see it as the Old Testament moves on when, as God's covenant people, Israel, God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. What I primarily want out of you is a relationship, to be with you we're going to celebrate that starting next week as we move into the New Testament when we get ready for Advent because we celebrate the name of God is, that's is coming at Christmas is Emmanuel, which means God with us. The thread continues through when we say Emmanuel is here, God is with us. And now it finds its culmination in the second to last chapter of the Bible. The, the dwelling place of God is among mortals. And that that dwelling place drives out so many of the things that cause us fear and pain and anxiety. That the dwelling place of God means that all death and all mourning and all pain and all sadness and all loneliness and all brokenness is driven away, driven out of the city. That for someone in exile like John or for people like you and I who have questions and doubts and loneliness and pain and abandonment and anxiety and fear and abuse that we have experienced, all of which is real, all of which brings us to our knees, all of which can haunt us. As we are people who have, who have mourned and at Thanksgiving might have particularly difficult times with those who are not around our table, either through fractured relationships or through the, them passing on that they are here in this place now, that that kind of pain which is real and almost paralyzes us at times, it is not the end of your story. It is not the end of any of our stories, that in the end times, all of that will be driven out, not because we learn the ability to do it, but because the presence of God is now among mortals, and all of that is driven away from God. It's amazing, hopeful good news that the kingdom of God is a place where God now dwells among mortals. Let's go to the next. Let's keep going. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And in the spirit, he carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It has the glory of God and a radiance like a very rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. The angel who talked to me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is its light, and the lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. People will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who practice abomination or falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, if you pay attention to this when we read this, this is one of the funniest passages of Scripture that exists in all of the Bible, okay? Because what happens is, is that John is taken to this city, to the New Jerusalem, and the angel gives him a golden measuring stick, a measuring rod. Now, if you can hold it and handle it, it's probably not any bigger than I am, right? So it's maybe like a yardstick or something like that. I mean, it's a nice yardstick. It's a golden yardstick, but let's just say it's a yardstick or something like it. And then the angel says, now what you got to do is you need to start in one corner, and I want you to measure how long the city is. Now, it's not like, you know, from me to Jack Fager, right? You can measure that with a yardstick and that works okay. It's 1,500 miles. You gotta imagine this like one, two, three, four, for 15. Do you know how long 1,500 miles is? I measured, I looked up what is 1,500 miles north of Austin. At 1,500 miles from Austin going north, you are 100 miles north of Winnipeg, Canada. Okay? So it's like someone handing you a yardstick and going, go down to 6th Street, tell me how far Winnipeg is from here, right? And so you just have to like, how, I mean, it probably took this guy 10 years to measure this, and if it's me, I'm sitting there like 68,321, 68,321, wait, did I say that already? I get confused, do I have to start over if I'm not certain, like, do you have to go back to the beginning of this? And then you finally, after whatever, how many years it takes, and you measure the length of the city, the angel's like, good for you. Good job, now measure the width. <laughs> One, two, three, and then you do that, and you're like 20 years older, and then it's like, now measure the height. One, two, three, <laughs> and it's like, why? Why, why, except this angel's just like, let's see if he'll do it, right? <laughs> he did twice, let's see if he'll fall for the height of it, right? No, it's like there's a purpose to this, there's a, there's a point to it. And what the angel is saying here is, 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 that, is that he wants John to see and he wants all of us to see that the dimensions in this city are completely different from how Austin works. We exist in dimensions where we sort of see a flat structure and there's maybe rivers or there's maybe hills or something like that. That this city is both wide and long but also high. This city exists in a whole different dimension. It's like something if you've seen Doctor Strange, the movie, or Inception, the movie where like, the city like folds up and it starts going up the wall or something like that. The city, the New Jerusalem is described as a perfect cube. It's as long as it is wide as it is high. It's like an encapsulated, cubed space. And so the city is long, like on the ground, like we would expect, but it starts going up the walls. It probably doesn't have a sky. It's enclosed. So the city might actually be hanging down from where John is standing, from the roof that's 1,500 miles above him that he probably can't see, above him. It exists in a way that you and I have a hard time. Now, what is significant about that? Why would the angel want John not just to go, wow, this is a cubed structure, it's really different, I've never seen anything like this. Why would he want him to measure it? Well, there's one other place in the Bible where there is a perfectly cubed structure that is described. Only one other place. It's not in the New Testament, it's in the Old Testament where the dimensions of the temple of Jerusalem are given. The temple in the heart of Jerusalem, where if you've been to Jerusalem, where the Wailing Wall is today, the last remnants of that temple, the holiest place in all of Judaism. The temple where God dwelt had all kinds of different aspects to it. It had walls, and it had gates, and it had a courtyard where people could gather for festivals. Inside, it had an altar room where sacrifices were made. But at the heart of the temple, at the core of the temple, was this one room, and it was a perfectly cubed room called the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies in the the temple was the actual room space where God lives, where God dwelt, where God was found, and no one and nothing else could be in the room. There was no furniture, there was nothing else to it, and only one priest one time a year could enter into the Holy of Holies, and the priest had to be purified before that happened. It was where God dwelt. And so what what the angel wants John to see and wants you and I to see is is that this city is a a largely expanded vision of the Holy of Holies from the Temple of Jerusalem. It is defined as this is where God dwells. And it can have a ceiling over this city because we don't need the sun, we don't need the moon anymore. Like we depend on the sun to give us light. But the light of this city starts at the core, at the center, and it goes out from the center out to the extremes. So light's not found above coming down onto us. It starts at the middle and goes out in every direction from the throne that is there. And lastly, we see in chapter 22, the last chapter of the Bible, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And on either side of the river is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations." Nothing accursed will be found there anymore, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And there will be no more night. They need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And He said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. For the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent His angel to show his servants what must soon take place. See, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. What is heaven? This thing that we will experience, this thing that is passing on, what is it? Any of you ever seen the movie called Field of Dreams? Any of you seen that movie? Anybody? Okay. It dates me because I still think of it as a current movie. Um, I'm going to try to describe it very, very quickly, because it has an interesting take on this. The Field of Dreams is a movie, I promise you it's a really good film, but it's weird to try to explain it in 20 seconds. But um, it's a story of, of a farmer in Iowa, played by Kevin Costner, the actor and Kevin Costner is farming one day at the beginning of the movie. He's farming in his cornfields in Iowa, and a voice essentially comes and tells him to build a baseball diamond right in the middle of his cornfield. So he rips up all the corn and he loses the cash that's going to come from that, and he endangers his family farm to build this baseball field. And as he builds it, I promise you it's normal when you're watching the movie, ghosts of dead ex-baseball players start coming out it's a really good film, from the cornfields, and they start playing golf. Golf, they start playing golf. That's the sequel that's coming that you don't know about yet. It's actually Frisbee golf uh, through the (laughs) cornfields. They might have played golf, but what we know is that they played baseball. Uh, And so they would come out in their uniforms and they would play baseball on this, this field in the middle of Iowa. And at the very end of the movie... This game is being played, and Kevin Costner and his wife and his daughter are out there watching it. And then there is a this thing is driving me nuts uh, And then there is a uh, moment where one of the baseball players who's playing Catcher" takes off his catcher's mask, and it's Kevin Costner's father. Now what you learn over the course of the movie is that Kevin Costner and his dad, like many of us experience, had a ruptured relationship with his father. They had a broken relationship. They quit talking. And Kevin Costner's dad dies before they're able to reconcile their relationship. It's this burden that Kevin Costner's character has with him throughout the film. And all of a sudden, he goes out on the field, and his father, as a young man who had played minor league baseball, was there, and Kevin Costner and his dad have a game of catch on the baseball diamond in Iowa. I am a crying mess. I've seen it like 15 times. I'm crying every single time. My British wife has watched it, and she's like, I don't get it. I, I, I have no idea why you're crying right now. I'm like, I don't know how you're not. This is like just one of the little insights into our marriage. I'm like, how, do you, how are you not crying at this point? But as they're playing catch, Kevin Costner's father looks at Kevin Costner and says, can I ask you something? Is this heaven? And Kevin Costner says, no, it's not heaven. It's Iowa. And then Kevin Costner says to his dad, Is there such a thing as heaven? And his dad says, Oh, yeah, there's a heaven. It's a place where your dreams come true. The music comes up, and I'm crying, and Beth's going, I don't get it. I don't understand what's wrong with you right now. It's a wonderful film, it's a terrible definition of heaven. But that's what we cling to most of the time. Oh, he's died and is going to be able to play golf now whenever he wants to, and no one's going to be able to say that. You're going to be able to go fishing with no guilt. Nobody's going to give him a hard time for going to The Longhorns will win the championship every year, right? Like national championship, whatever our dreams are. And you have some really good dreams. I know things you care about. Kevin Costner's character had really great dreams. It was a beautiful moment in the movie. I have dreams that I hope to see true. Heaven is greater than any dream you have ever had in your life. Eternity is more than any completion of any dreams you've ever had on your own. That all of the Bible leads to this moment in the final chapter where it says that we will gather around the throne, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, gathered around as equal brothers and sisters, and on the throne will be God and the Lamb who was slain. And we will look at Him, and it says in verse 5, we will see His face we will look into his eyes. And when that happens, we will lose track of all time and all space, that that is the moment of eternity. That is where those whom we've loved before are now, gathered around the throne, seeing into the eyes of their creator, And experience a joy and a wonderment that we only can sit there and sit back and worship. 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 This is heaven. The kingdom. Eternity. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we ask this day that you would hear us as we stand and worship you with the heavenly beings and the angels gathered around the throne. May we see your face. May we get a glimpse of your love. And may our hearts burn with love for you in return. This is what we are created for. Hear us be with us, abide with us as people who will find our rest in your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.